Good morning. <laughs> the Lord is good. Amen. As we draw closer to the end of this year, I usually take a moment uh, to reflect uh, on the whole year, uh, just just to find all the reasons to be thankful and uh, praise the name of the Lord. That's always a good practice, because throughout the year, the Lord has indeed been good to us, to us, good to us individually, good to us as a family. And most importantly, the Lord has been good to us as a church. If you uh, go back and see the whole year, uh, we have celebrated many marriages in this church, many birthdays, anniversaries, uh, many prayers have been answered. And I feel like this morning we, we just need to take a moment to say thank you to the Lord, because every good thing comes from above from heaven, from the Lord, every good thing that has happened in our church has happened because the Lord has indeed been gracious and good to us. The Lord has taught us many things. Every Sunday, he has been feeding us his word. He has been strengthening us individually in our personal fellowship uh, time with him. So I just want to encourage us to just take a minute and just Close your eyes if you want to lift up your hands and just say thank you. We have a word uh, from Psalms chapter 103 where the psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. You see, David here is encouraging himself, his soul, to not forget all the benefits, all the good things that the Lord has done for her. Because the soul sometimes may be tempted to think it's because of my strength or because of my will or because of what I have done that I have received all these things. But David says to his soul, do not forget all his benefits, the benefits that the Lord has given to you. From verse 3, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with a loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Amen. Just close your eyes now. Think of the goodness of the Lord in your own life, what the Lord has done for you, all the prayers that the Lord has answered, all of the days that the Lord has added laughter to your face. All of the prayers that the Lord has answered. For the healings that took place. For all the wonders with which God has delighted our hearts. For, for his compassion in our lives. For he has been good, and his mercy and his loving kindness has been overwhelming in all our lives. Father God, we just want to take this moment to say thank you for everything that you have done for us as a church. You have sent your word throughout this year, 
and healed our souls, healed our minds, healed our spirits. You have answered so many prayers in our church this year. Being the last Sunday that we gather as a church, we just want to take this moment to say thank you, to appreciate you, to just give you all the credit that you deserve. For nothing has happened that you have not allowed. Our strength has not brought us to this year, to the end of this year. But your mighty power and your overwhelming, love, your overwhelming love has sustained us through the months and weeks and days and minutes and hours and seconds of this year. We just want to take this moment to say thank you, Abba Father, for all the good things you have done in our lives. Our soul will not forget your benefits. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that has washed all our sins and iniquities. Thank you for you have drawn us closer in fellowship with you, in fellowship with each other throughout this year. Thank you for you have fed us your word throughout this year, encouraging us to be all in, to be all in, to be all in love, to be all in the fruits of the Spirit, to be all in in a relationship with you, Lord. How awesome and wonderful you have been for us. Many people have traveled throughout the year from our church and they have returned safely. We can go on and on listing your goodness. But we just want to stand and pose and say thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for adding joy into our lives. Thank you for cleansing us of our sins. Thank you for drawing us closer into a relationship with you. Thank you for all the prayers that have been answered. Thank you for all the prayers that are going to be answered. We just give you all the glory and all the honor And we just want to take this moment to to say we love you, we appreciate you, and we give you all the glory and all the honor. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning, I just want to uh, share a message with you, which I shared uh, with a couple of uh, church members last year as we were celebrating Christmas according to the Ethiopian calendar. So in that... uh, program, I shared a message on the implications of Christmas. What does the Christmas story imply? So we we often talk about implications in our day-to-day activities, day-to-day lives. Someone speaks to us uh, using certain words and we, we say, what does that imply? We often try to look beyond words and actions in in order to get a deeper meaning and understanding into things. So I won't be uh, wrong to assume that we are all experts on drawing conclusions and implications. Let me also this, make this point uh, when I talk about implications. When we talk about implications, we are talking about basically two things, the seen and the unseen. The seen 
is the thing uh, that is visible and tangible. It's something you can see and feel and touch. And it is from that you then go on and make uh, references and conclusions. It could be a word spoken. A word spoken or an action of a person could be the seen thing, the thing that you see. And from those words and actions, you go on to observe some other deeper meanings and understandings. So you, see, you may see a baby lying in a manger or the person of Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. That is the thing that you see. That is the thing that is visible and tangible. But there are deeper meanings to it. So this morning we are going to talk about the implications of Christmas. We are going to seek to understand and to get a deeper meaning of Christmas. And here is one reason why we need to do that. The very claim of Christmas is so overwhelming. It's mind-boggling. The Christmas story tells us that the God of the universe, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the creator of the galaxies and the whole universe and the trillions and trillions of stars, which, by the way, he knows them by name, became a man. He became one of us. That is overwhelming to comprehend. The very claim of Christmas is overwhelming because it tells us a story that God became one of us and dwelt among us, that he downgraded himself into humanity. When you go through the the books of the Old Testament, you see how majestic and how glorious and how powerful God is. And he is the omnipresent God who is everywhere at every time. He is the omnipotent God who is all-powerful. There is nothing that the Lord cannot do. He is all-powerful. He is an omniscient God who is all-knowing. He literally knows everything. And here is one description of his majesty and glory from the book of Isaiah chapter 14, chapter 40 from verse 12 to 18. Here the, the prophet declares, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heavens with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beast sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? And this is just one verse in the whole of scripture declaring how powerful and how awesome and how great the Lord God is. And the Christmas story tells us that this majestic God 
became like one of us in order that he may save us and redeem us. So Christmas is the time Jesus was born. This is a fact that we can relate to. This is a historical fact. But then when you discern that spiritually, it just means that that's the moment when eternity stepped into time. When the God who reigns and rules in eternity made a decision to step into time. This is the, time, the moment of incarnation where God, who is a spirit, dwelt in a flesh and the limitless God became limited in a human body. The whole powerful God became limited in what he can do. And you will get more overwhelmed to learn that the goal of his birth was his death. Jesus is perhaps the only person who was born with the whole purpose, with the whole idea of dying. That was his goal. His goal was to die. Now when we're born, we just want to hang out for as long as we want, for as long as we can here on the earth and enjoy our life. And death is the last thing that we want to worry about or that we think about. But Jesus, from the very moment of his birth, was set to die. And his mother Mary was told a prophecy that she should not be all that joyful about this birth because this is a birth that is going to divide the nations and that uh, this word is going to pass through her life. So she is told to be careful and to be watchful because this is not an ordinary birth. This is not an ordinary child who, just, who, who was just born. There is some, something different about this birth of Jesus. So this is the story of Christmas in a nutshell. Now I want to talk about the implications. What does this story of Christmas then imply? What does the ultimate sacrifice that was paid for our redemption, the incarnation of God, the eternal God, what does it imply? What does it tell us about who God is? And what does it tell us about who we are? And what does it tell us about the situation we find ourselves in? So if you meditate on these questions then you, and you study the word of God along these lines, you will be surprised to learn amazing facts, amazing truths. But this morning I just want to briefly mention five implications of the Christmas story. Are you ready? The first implication of the Christmas story is that God is faithful. What do I mean by that? Well, in Bethlehem at the time that Jesus was born, I, I assume there, have been, there, are, there were so many other births. Many other children were born. But the birth of Jesus was different because the birth of Jesus was a promise kept. Because the, pro, the birth of Jesus was a prophecy that was fulfilled. As I was preparing this message, the Holy Spirit gave me a statement which said, Jesus was born in the heart of God way before he was born in Bethlehem. How true is that? You see, the first prophetic utterance concerning the coming of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus, is found in the book of Genesis chapter 3 from verse 14 to 15. 
right after the fall of Adam and Eve, here comes God and as part of his conversation with Adam and Eve and then the serpent, the Lord God says in Genesis chapter 3 verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heels. So after the fall of Adam and Eve and their separation from the fellowship with God, we see God here intervening and pronouncing his plan of redemption for us, for humanity. And he declares here that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. Now, this prophetic utterance was ultimately fulfilled, fulfilled in the life of Jesus because Jesus was the person concerning whom this prophecy was fulfilled or was foretold. He was born of a woman and he defeated Satan upon the cross at Calvary and he secured our redemption and the remission of our sins by his own blood. Now here is why I say the the story of the Christmas story implies God's faithfulness. Notice that thousands of years have passed between the prophecy being between the the prophecy being uttered between the promise being made and its fulfillment. And God had to work in partnership with men throughout these years in order to to to, to just give us a clue of what his plan is his purpose for redemption. So from Adam to Eve and to Abel and to Seth and to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob and then to the birth of the nation of Israel, then to Moses and the prophets and everybody, God had to establish covenants with people and he had to teach them his way of righteousness, pointing them in the right direction of the coming Messiah. But in this relationship, God has been always faithful, but men have always been rebelling against the ways of the Lord. Particularly when you read the the books of the prophets, you see that God usually likens his relationship with Israel as the relationship of a married couple. That God is the husband in that relationship who is faithfully committed to, to his spouse, whereas the children of Israel, which also encompasses us, were treacherous in that relationship. Going, of course, wandering, of course, time after time, going and worshiping idols and, and committing grievous sins and everything under the sun. But God was always faithful in that relationship, and he was faithful to the prophetic message that he has uttered in the book of Genesis, irrespective of what was going on, around him, irrespective of what was going on in the relationship with men. So God stayed true to his word in the midst of disobedience and evil and sin and rebellion. So when the time comes and you see a baby born of a virgin lying in a manger, you see the heart of a God who was and is still faithful to his word. The second implication of the Christmas story, the story that tells us that God became a man 
in order to save us is that God is love. In the book of 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, we are told that God is love. Now, there is a fundamental difference between describing God in terms of love and describing persons in, in, in reference to love. You see, when we say God is love, we are not merely referring to his attributes. We are not just saying that God has love or that God is uh, in the nature of loving. You see, God is not a creature that we should refer, that we should reference to his nature. But when we refer to people, when we refer to us in, in reference to love, us being kind or loving, we are referring to our nature. We are referring to uh, how we conduct ourselves and our lives. And that is why, if you notice, whenever we are asked about ourselves, we describe ourselves usually in reference to things that are external to us or things that have been given to us. If you ask me to introduce myself, I would, I would begin by telling you my name. But my name is not something that was inherently with me. It was something that was given to me. And then I would go on and talk about my educational background, which is something that I have acquired. It's something that I've been given to me. It's something external to me. But when we talk about God in terms of love, it's, it's totally different. Moses once asked God, whom shall I say sent me in case the children of Israel asked me, who is this God, who is this person that you're talking about? And here is what God said to Moses. Go and tell the children of Israel that I am sent me. God called himself I am. He does not need to use external references to describe himself because everything that is external to him has come out of him. Therefore, it cannot describe him. Love cannot describe God, but God can describe love. It is, it is in this sense that we should always understand, understand God being love. It just means that he is love. That is why circumstances will not affect his love towards us. Love at its purest form is God himself. And that is a love that seeks to save and not destroy. That is a love that seeks to restore you, to restore your hope and hope into your life and situations. This is the reckless love that we often sing about that leaves the 99 and goes to look for the one missing because every life is immensely valued by his love. And the ultimate demonstration of this love took place during Christmas. Jesus came out of this love. Jesus came out of the Father. And in John chapter 3, verse 16, the most favorite verse of everybody, I guess, this love of God is declared. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his, love, his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Again, this love of God is declared in the book of Romans chapter 5 from verse 6 to 8, where we are told, For when we were still without strength, in due time 
Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a, for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the second implication of the Christmas story that tells us that God became a man and dwelt among us also implies that God really loves us. He really loves us. He, I, I don't know if I can w- use this word, but he is really crazy about us. He really loves you, and not as a church, but individually, individually, as a person. God loves each and every one of us, and how overwhelming is that? Now, I want to treat the third and the fourth implications together because they, they overlap. Here is where I get serious. The third implication of Christmas is that it shows us how far we have fallen. And the fourth implication is how big a divide sin created between God and us. The Bible says in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, these third and fourth implications are better addressed through questions. Just think about these questions that I am going to tell you. But how short or how far did we fall? How far did we fall that God had to become a man in order to save us? How far did we fall that God could not find any other solution to redeem us and bring us, in, bring us back into fellowship with him? How far did we fall that Christ had to leave his eternal throne and glory and come as a despised servant? How big a divide did sin create that the law could not bridge it or that the good works that we do could not suffice? Or that the good things that we do could not earn us a place in the heart of God or in the presence of God. You will see from the following verse that I am going to read how sin quickly perpetuated itself right after the fall of Adam and Eve to become the default setting of humanity. In the book of Isaiah chapter 59 from verse 12 to 16, the prophet declares, For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord, and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, justice is turned back. And righteousness stands afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. So truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it, 
and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own right arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. Realizing how this sinful nature of humanity was so perverse, C.S. Lewis said in his book, Mere Christianity, it cost God nothing, so far as we know, to create nice things, but to convert rebellious wills cost him crucifixion. So from this, we understand the serious implications that sin has in our relationship with a righteous and holy God. Sin cannot stand in his presence, and it is far removed from his holiness. And it took the blood of Jesus to wipe it off from our lives. Nothing else could do that. And we need to examine our life every day and make sure that we are always walking in holiness and that we are covered by the blood of Jesus. Because this is a very serious implication of the Christmas story. If God had to become a man, if, if he had to leave his glory and throne and become a despised servant in order to save us, that should tell us how serious sin is. That should tell us how far we have fallen from God's glory. So when we realize this, sin will not be something that we, that we uh, see lightly. It should not be a friend of us. It should not be a friend of ours. The fifth implication of Christmas pertains to eternal separation from God. Now we have established above how there was no way to redeem us but for Christ to come and be crucified and take the punishment for our sins. I believe the fact that the creator of the heavens and the earth, the Alpha and Omega God, had to become a man in order to save us is somehow a reciprocal image of the eternal separation that awaits those who really reject Christ and the saving grace that is extended freely to us. This is one of the challenging but yet true implications of the Christmas story. And here is a verse that that backs this fifth implication. In the book of Hebrews chapter 10, from verse 26 to 31, we read, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth. I want to read that again. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth that God became a man to save us. The knowledge of the truth that it took the blood of Jesus to wipe off our sin. The knowledge of the fact that God really loves us and that he really, that he is really committed to a relationship with us. Having received that knowledge, if we sin willfully, the Bible declares, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The ultimate sacrifice, which is the blood of Jesus, has already been shed. Verse 27 
but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is fearful thing. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the last uh, implication of the Christmas story that I wanted to share with you. That if it took the Son of God to become a man in order to redeem us, and that's the only thing that could have wiped off our sin, then what else remains if we reject that truth? But thank God we, we don't reject it. Thank God we have received it. Let me close with a second quote from C.S. Lewis. If the band may come in, that would be great. So in his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis, he dealing with the doctrine of hell, uh, declares, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them? They will not be forgiven. To leave them alone? Alas, I am afraid that is what he does. Amen. Let's take a moment to now glorify the Lord for this wonderful truth of Christmas. Let's take a moment now to acknowledge God and be grateful for his faithfulness and for his love which was revealed to us in this story of the Christmas that Christ became a man that Christ took on flesh that he became like a despised servant that he may earn us a place in the kingdom of God this is a magnificent truth this is a spiritual truth. It may not be discerned with our physical senses. It may not be discerned with our mind. But our spirit deeply knows the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us allow the Holy Spirit to enlighten the Christmas story in our hearts. To enlighten the Christmas story in our season of festivity that Christ may become more alive and more bold in our lives so that we would cherish this relationship with him this personal relationship with a loving and caring father and if we continue along this path of righteousness 
we are destined for an eternal life, for an eternity with God in his presence. Lord, we appreciate you. We want to glorify your name. We want to say thank you for the ultimate price that was paid for our salvation. It is a mystery, an overwhelming truth that you have become one of us and have treaded the earth like us. That you have gone through everything that we passed through. You have become a high priest who knows exactly what we passed through because you have passed through it. You are a high priest who can sympathize with us because you have been tempted with everything that we have been tempted, but yet pure and clean and blameless. Lord, thank you for the Christmas story. Thank you for the Christmas story that you became a man and that you indeed became one of us and saved us. Thank you for the blood that was shed for us. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that has wiped our sin. And thank you for the hearts that you are changing right now. Thank you for the hearts that you are touching right now, Holy Spirit. Thank you for the hearts that you are convicting right now, Holy Spirit. I declare the birth of Jesus be made in every heart today, alive and shining. Yes, Holy Spirit, move in our midst. Draw every heart to Christ this morning. Strengthen every soul this morning. Strengthen every will this morning. As we draw closer to the end of this year where we have celebrated a life of all in, where we are taught to be all in in our relationship with God, we ask for a fresh anointing. We ask for a grace. We ask for an empowerment for everyone. We ask for an empowerment in prayer. We ask for an empowerment in fellowship with you. We ask for an empowerment in fellowshipping with one another. We ask for the gifts of the Spirit to be manifested upon each and every one of us. We ask for your light to shine through us. That as we step into the new year and the new season that you have planned for us, that we will walk in it with grace, full of power and faith. Thank you for everything, Lord. Thank you for everything. Thank you for everything. Let all the glory and all the adoration be for you and to you only. We love you, Father. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.